0: is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever.
1: So, turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment, and welcome to another awesome episode of Totally 80s. We love hearing from you, so why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, or email us your comments and show ideas, actually, to podcast at totally80s.com. Speaking of show ideas, I'm very excited about today's episode. We are coming to the end of 2022, but since I live every uh, year, I party like it's 1982. We're here to talk about what I think is one of the best, if not the best years, of the 80s for music. So first joining me, we have one of the biggest 80s fans I know. His name on Twitter is literally Jake, quote, the 80s never ended in my world, rude. If you're in the Minneapolis area, he's been voted best club DJ in the Twin Cities for the 10 straight years by the readers of City Pages magazines, and you've probably caught his show Transmission on Minneapolis' The Current or danced his DJ sets at the legendary famous First Avenue Club. And no matter what city you are in, I recommend tuning into his twice-weekly 80s-themed shows on Twitch. Those online dance parties he did on Twitch really got me through the pandemic, so thank you, Jake Rood, for that, and thank you, Jake, for joining me today.
2: I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much for asking me to be a part of it.
1: Of course. I know we're going to have some interesting perspectives. We're all like kind of different ages and we're all going to, you know, sort of dive into the world. We're going to flash back to the future of 1982 together. And my other guest is someone who really... Really needs no introduction. He is a man who was right there on the ground floor or that brick basement floor, or wherever it was, when MTV launched in 1981 and MTV really got going in 1982, which was when I finally got my mom to call my local cable operator. And so, so joining me now is original MTV VJ and current Sirius XM 80s on 8 host, Alan Hunter. Welcome, wow.
0: Alan. Lindsay, it's an honor. Just like Jake said, it's an honor for me to be here. I love you. I-
1: I am super honored. I love you, too. I love both of you guys because you're like, like I said, you are 80s fans. Alan, you were there in 1982 when MTV, I think, was really taking off. That was the year when it really got into the public consciousness. But you two, Jake and Alan, you've met before. You've crossed paths in the sand, 80s in the sand, if I'm not mistaken.
0: We have.
2: Yeah, yeah. The last two years, I've been a DJ down at uh, outside of Cancun and... Um, yeah, '80s in the Sand. It was an honor to to meet one of my heroes, one of my broadcasting heroes. I was there in 1982, watching Mr. Hunter and soaking in inspiration to what I would, you know, go on to do.
0: Yeah, I knew you had a glitch when we saw each other at '80s in the Sand, and we that, were in some fancy room by the beach. Yes. There, we were yes. talking.
2: I, I felt
0: you seemed that. odd, and I said, "Did you watch me back in the '80s? That's that's your problem." Mm.
1: (laughs) I did I watched you back in the 80s and I swear to god it was the best of times it was the best of times you know we mentioned 1981 I actually did a best of 1981 episode last year but now let's go back I can't believe it was 40 years like that's just kind of ridiculous mind-boggling
2: that 82 is 40 years ago Uh,
1: in my opinion it was the best year for music of the 1980s and I don't know if you guys agree but do you agree I mean for Alan you must approach it with the memory of this thing in 1981 um, that maybe people thought wouldn't last. By 1982, it was pretty obvious that MTV was going to be a really big force in pop culture and music.
0: Yeah, I would say whether I think 1982 was musically the best year, for me, kind of mid-decade is a really sweet spot. But I will say it's, it's fine for you to pinpoint 82 because things were really starting to, to launch at that point. Uh, you know, I, I had been around where MTV had been around, what, maybe half a year when 82, you know, landed. Mm-hmm. August the 1st, 1981. So I only had a few months under my belt getting paid <laughs> like <laughs> regularly as a human being. So, you know, 82 is a good time for me because I had a steady job, you know, and started to buy a little bit of furniture for, for my apartment. I, in fact, I think I started thinking about moving to another apartment that I could now afford. But I think early in 82, we still didn't know that MTV was going to last. It was still struggling to make money. Still, you know, they were about to get uh, canned by all these cable companies. But the momentum was there beginning of 82. And as we'll discuss today, so many, so many artists started to get their feet underneath them as well. And it had everything to do with MTV's existence. It's like, whoa, wow, you get on MTV – And you might become famous.
1: Well, I think you should take some credit, Alan. I'll take some credit that I called my cable operator and said I want my MTV. (laughs) I think I helped the cause. (laughs) I will say, so I got MTV in 1982 as a a young girl, turned it on, and the first video I ever saw on MTV was I Melt With You by Modern English, a 1982 classic, obviously later featured in the movie Valley Girl. But I first heard it on MTV, and I just – my overall reaction when I first started watching MTV in 1982 was it was – It was the second British invasion, you know, obviously modern English, but I want to kind of go around the horn and discuss our favorite albums and artists of that year, this magical year, certainly any anecdotes you have. And obviously, spoiler alert, I I mean, we kind of have to start with Duran Duran's Rio. I, in my opinion, ultimate classic 80s record record of all time
2: the best sorry to interrupt but the best
1: the best the best and yeah uh, jake actually came out to los angeles to watch duran duran get inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame we did Damn. a rock and roll hall of fame episode recently so yeah let's just get into duran duran because when you're talking alan about you know this idea that in 1982 people weren't necessarily still sure if mtv would get off the ground i mean duran duran and mtv linked forever i mean MTV helped them, but I would say that Duran Duran helped MTV with these videos they made, and I feel like they were one of the bands that kind of were the poster children. I mean, they were literally a poster for this child. I had them all over my walls, but <laughs> as
0: which, did I,
1: but I feel I, like they were so I, instrumental visually and musically and for 1982.
0: I totally agree. I mean, I think they were the poster band for MTV. You could throw in U2 as well, but U2 – they were not the brand necessarily that Duran Duran wanted to be. Duran Duran came to the table fully loaded for the visual age. Uh, "Planet Earth" and "Girls on Film" were the first videos that we had from them when we started, and those were mind blowing. "Girls on Film" to this day is, you know. <laughs>
1: You didn't play the, the uncensored girls on <laughs> the, film. I the know.
0: R-rated version, the that night version. And, yeah, the R-rated version that Mark Goodman and I saw in the green room right before it aired the next day. <laughs> we were going, "Oh my god, how are they going to show this?" And of course, they had a few edits to make it PG. Uh, just still, a few. It was. Just a few. It set people's hair on fire. The parents thought, "Surely, this MTV thing is the devil's workshop. Look at what we're seeing."
1: But then they got all glamorous, you know, for the the real They Rio totally videos. did. But and funny, not that you know, the other videos weren't glamorous, but they like no, left no. the boxing ring with this with this Lady Sumo wrestler and they went to like Antigua and Sri Lanka and stuff.
0: Yes, oh my God. So here's this band who are all pretty boys, no doubt, new fashion from the get go. And they were hanging around a bunch of uh, naked people and girls on film, and now they're riding on a boat in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. Uh, I want to be that band. I want them to be hungry for me, like a wolf, I think.
1: (laughs) They were very aspirational. I mean, obviously the 80s were, you know, they had their issues and, you know, but there was that whole like, you know, with the the Reagan, the greed is good, whatever. Like people look back at the 80s as kind of be a, a decade of excess and aspirational living. And here were these guys in Anthony Price suits on a yacht you know looking glamorous looking gorgeous
0: absolutely mtv could not have you said it was the uh, i mean predominantly on mtv in the beginning it was a bunch of brit bands because they had they knew what the visual medium was all about they had top the pops in the 70s they were making videos and they came on strong and that's why you know the predominant the playlist was dominated by the new wave and could you have asked for a better band than duran duran to showcase that
1: well, I will say, along with Duran Duran, and I ju- know, Jake, you have some thoughts about this, 1982 was the year that new romanticism broke in a big way. So like three other records that uh, I want to mention that came out in 1982, Culture Club's Kissing to be Clever. I mean, mm-hmm. my God. So uh, I, we could do a whole Boy George podcast, and perhaps one day I will, uh, <laughs> about how their visuals, you know, and also the, the crossing of the kind of different uh, genres of music they fused together was so important. Spandau Ballet's second album, Diamond, which had Instinction, Paint Me Down, Chant Number no- no. One. This is like before they really broke big with True, but they were a little right. more edgy, yeah. Blitz Club situation. Right. And then, literally, one of my favorite albums of all time, and definitely my go to album whenever I'm going through a breakup or a heartache, ABC's The Lexicon of Love. Jake, I know you're a fan of ABC. That record is, I listen to it still probably like yeah. a, once every couple of weeks, and it's, Age to perfection. Trevor Horn production, first thing Trevor Horn ever produced. Yeah. My God, I love ABC.
2: Yeah, it was nice to see the thing that happened in England in 1980, the, the new romantic era. It was short lived, you know, but uh, made an impact stylistically and music wise. And it was nice to see that impact on US airwaves in 1982. Obviously, I wasn't into it back then, but as a music connoisseur and collector and DJ, uh, now, you know, that just soaks in music from this era, especially. Uh, I think you nailed it earlier in that it was, it, it was, it, it's known as the second British invasion. And I wrote down, I mean, you you listed great records there, but uh Here's here's other I can I can list you some other UK albums that came out in in 1982. Well, one of Duran Duran's biggest influences put out a masterpiece, Avalon.
1: I was going to say that it's very interesting that with Avalon, which ended up being the last Roxy Music record, this band, Roxy Music, that had influenced. Duran Duran and Spandau Ballet and all these like kind of uh, Blitz Club, New Romantic bands, Mm -hmm. they became contemporaries of bands like Duran Duran. They were, you know, on MTV with More Than This and Avalon. And I just want to say as a quick aside, my two literally favorite songs of all time. These are my two favorite songs of all time. Both came out in 1982. They are More Than This by Roxy Music. And we could talk about them. They're not quite New Romantic or quite as glamorous looking. But Come On Eileen by Dexy's Midnight Runners came out (laughs) in 1982. Good. i adore that record i used to sit in front of mtv just waiting for you guys to play the video i never had to wait very long that no. video was played constantly i'd see the fiddle against the white background and i would get <laughs> so excited i never got tired of that song yeah and i do want to say one other funny thing the first three records i bought with my own money 1982 is a very good year i got wind that someone at my school had a dad who worked at some radio station and got lots of like promos with like the gold foil like you know not for resale stamps on him and this kid had this older kid had a racket of selling records on the black market for four dollars each and i, I kind of went up to him like it was you know like a drug deal or something I was like hey you got you got <laughs> you got any of these records yeah sure so the next day i gave him twelve dollars and he gave me Two rye by dex's Midnight runners the lexicon of love by abc and rio by duran duran my poor little girl head exploded i didn't know which one to play first
2: was his name damon
1: <laughs> he was my demon. Yeah. I'm not gonna out him because you know he committed a crime. I guess by selling me this contraband. I didn't know which one to listen to when I got home. Do you want to take a guess of which one it was?
2: Uh, uh, probably no. I can't because they're all amazing.
1: It was the Dexies record because I'd already heard a lot of the ABC album and and um, singles from Rio through MTV and also local radio, but. Dexies, I knew nothing but Come On Eileen. That record's a really good record, and I do want to take you to task one second, Alan, although I'm sure this wasn't your decision. (laughs) I remember when the follow-up single to Come On Eileen, the Celtic Soul Brothers, I remember when you guys were like, it's going to, you know, the video premiere is happening. I waited, I watched that video, MTV never played it again. Like, why did you play Come On Eileen like 10 times a day? You played the Celtic Soul Brothers once. It was my first memory of realizing that how what a maybe a, what kind of gatekeepers MTV and local and radio stations were, because it basically in America ended up Dexies ended up being like a one hit wonder because there wasn't as much play for the follow up single. It's a good song.
0: Yeah, it's a great song. And by the way, how long had Kevin Rowland and the band been trying to make it? I mean, it was almost like, I don't know, eight or nine years. And they went through various iterations of songs and music. And I'm certainly not well versed in their early stuff, which I guess you can get on import records, but they went through a lot of fashion changes as well. I love that they landed on the overall look, you know, the, the, I guess that was like farmer punk or something. They were the
1: original Mumford and Sons. They had like washboards and like. Things they buckets they banged on with like weren't they
2: from Birmingham as well like Duran Duran right yeah I believe they
0: were yes yeah, yeah. they were well who knows why we didn't play their video much it certainly would have been a collusion between less uh, with radio and more with record companies MTV wasn't out to necessarily decide who would be big. Um, and there's no way we'd, we would have quashed anything if there was momentum on radio and, and with the record company. So I don't know why we didn't play that the second one much. Whatever kind of feeble focus grouping we had, we certainly didn't have Nielsen ratings. MTV did some research as time went on. They got better at researching what was really you know playing on MTV, what was hot, what was not.
1: But pe- people who don't think that minute runners were only about... Come on, Eileen. They had, as Alan said, a whole, you know, I think Searching for the Young Soul Rebels is actually their bigger album in the UK. But they were a bit against the grain because these albums that, you know, when I talk about ABC with their gold LeMay suits. And by the way, I did see on MTV the Mantrap film. So thank you for that. And, you know, Spana Ballet Culture Club. And then back to you, Jake, I sort of went off on this Dexys tangent.
2: Yeah, so the little list here, and uh, no rhyme or reason, but they are all UK, and the albums all came out in 82. Joe Jackson, Night and Day, amazing record. Yaz, Upstairs at Eric's, Mm -hmm. Haircut 100, Pelican West, Psychedelic Furs, Forever Now, The Clash, Combat Rock, Culture Club, as you say, Kissing to be Clever, Lexicon and Love, as you mentioned. One of my favorites, and actually the very first artist I uh, interviewed at The Current, Thomas Dolby, Golden Age of Wireless. Such a good record.
1: We're the same person, Jake. I had all of these on my (laughs) list. Thank you for being so efficient ticking them off. Well, we're not done yet. Keep going. Keep going. Kate Bush,
2: The Dreaming, The Cure, of course, pornography. Pornography. Uh, and then one of my favorites again, Simple Minds, New Gold Dream, 81, mm-hmm. 82, 83, 84, A Flock of Seagulls debut self-titled record, the fricking masterpiece. And there's so much more than a one hit or two hit wonder.
1: And like they got so much attention from their hair. For the
2: hair. Come on, give it up. Yeah. I do
1: want to say I don't know if you ever noticed this, Alan. It's pretty funny. Obviously, MTV played uh, "I Ran" a lot by by Flock of Seagulls. They're big, huge hit. And they were not a one-hit wonder. I get really mad when people call them a one-hit wonder. Well,
0: "Space Age Love Song" on any given day is, you know, maybe one of my favorites. You guys, by the way, the encyclopedias. I'm relying on you for <laughs> the trivia of the year. I get I get confused. I mean, people go, "Hey, man, what record was that song on?" I go, "I don't know." Right.
1: It's a team effort, but I do want to know, Alan, if you ever noticed that when the flock of seagulls i ran video came out they're in this like room that's like basically covered yep. it's all in it's a mirrored
0: yep. it's a, yeah.
1: a mirrored mylar room yeah. if you look really closely there's a camera on a tripod smack dab yep. in the middle like with a trash bag over it to try to hide it
0: this wasn't matrix back then they didn't have multi cameras and 3D oh it's so good this no, was yeah the video uh, looked
1: was, like it cost 5 and it was so great low rent
0: baby it was yep. low rent yeah
1: i do want to mention some others that were british
2: well, one one last one, and then, then its probably <laughs>
1: one on my list anyway.
2: I bet it is because it's it's a huge one, and especially for like music heads, XTC, English. Oh my! Oh yeah, oh my.
0: It, was,
1: it was on the list. It was on the list.
0: I hum. Since is working over to. Since working over time from xdc all the time is that from that album
2: you bet it is yeah Yeah. they and
0: the jam did you mention the jam i don't know when their album came out
2: oh they do did the gift come out in 1982
0: i don't know with all of the lists that you guys with all the bands you guys are are spitting out from 1982 it's it's kind of waking me up to the fact that yeah that was a that was such a fertile year you know how did the american acts even have any room It was
1: definitely a crowded market for British imports, that's for sure, and I will look up those jam statistics in a moment because I don't want to leave anybody hanging, but since we are talking about mods like the jam, we have to talk about ska because ska had a really good year in 1982 as well. For instance, Madness had their biggest hit, at least here in the U.S. anyway, with Our House, Huge Song, and I of course would be remiss if I didn't mention that 82 was the year that Terry Hall... Neville Staple and Lynnville Golding broke off from the specials to form Fun Boy 3, not just because so tragically Terry Hall left us, he, he just died, and that's a huge, huge loss for music, but also because the debut album from 1982 by Fun Boy 3 is actually what introduced most of the world to, as they say in England, bananarama, or as they say here in America, bananarama. And they went on to become one of the biggest girl groups of all time, not just the 80s, but all time. And they kind of got introduced through their collaborations with Boy 3. Also, since it's all connected and we're talking about girl groups, I do want to mention that Terry Hall co-wrote one of the Go-Go's biggest hits in 1981 which was our lips are sealed. It's all connected. And now I have found out, I've looked it up that yes, Jam the Gift came out in March, 1982. So again,
0: I win something. I don't know. Obviously
1: Paul Weller went on to do lots of great stuff, both solo and with the style council, which I believe had a member of Dexy's Midnight Runners in it, the style council did. But I want to talk real quickly about two other artists that released their solo debuts that year. One of them is Adamant, friend or foe, came out in 1982. I've always thought Adam and the Ants and Adamant are completely underrated. And of course, there was novelty to how they dressed. And Adam had like kind of a uniform for every year. Like one time, you know, the Prince Charming, like swashbuckling pirate, the different face paint, the like kind of like Sergeant Pepper Jackie wear, changed with every, but that's a great record. That was, and and also Billy Idol from formerly, obviously of Generation X, although I imagine there's a lot of people in America who aren't aware of that, but Billy Idol one of the most iconic, one of the biggest rock stars of the 80s, kind of one of the guys who really bridged that world between new wave and harder rock, because a lot of people who are into metal and hard rock like Billy Idol. Billy Idol's self-titled record came out in 1982. Too
2: much is never enough. Yeah. <laughs> sure. yeah.
0: Well, Dancing With Myself, too, was a Gen X song that he redid for his solo career. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know which version I like better. I mean, it's just a little bit more produced, the, uh, the one he did solo. But I think you're totally right. Billy Idol definitely would have eschewed that new romantic uh, wave. He certainly didn't want to ride that because he he preferred leather and no shirt on, you know. (laughs) So he was one of my favorites, I think, at the time because he rocked it so hard. And I got to see him last year in in Los Angeles. And (laughs) it's so funny. A guy like that has kept that same attitude uh, all these years.
2: He does that uh, super group, doesn't he, Lindsay and Ellen? Um, what is it called? I think it's
1: Generation Sex.
2: Generation Sex with wow. Steve Jones, Billy Idol, oh, yeah. and who else is in it? Tony from Sig Sig Sputnik and Generation mm-hmm. X.
1: Yes. Uh, oh, my God. I need to go. They're doing some shows, I believe, in uh, England. I need to go. That's my New Year's resolution. It's like a punk
2: rock super group, and it sounds amazing.
0: That's wild. Well, you know, I like Billy's Last stuff. The Cage was good. I thought the EP that – yeah, Two or three songs on it. And the video was pretty swinging as well. I'm just glad he's doing videos. Yeah, so. he's still doing great.
1: Speaking of punk, you know, and sort of tangentially related to the Sex Pistols, you know, Malcolm McLaren kind of had a good year in 1982. Like Buffalo Gals, you know, yeah. he obviously had managed the Sex Pistols, but Buffalo Gals was one of the earlier hip hop songs. I think it qual- qualifies Some as a classic. Hip-hop. And also bow wow wow came out in nineteen eighty two and you know there's there's kind of a weird story there, but you know,
0: yeah, the controversy she was thirteen in a laundromat, yeah,
1: yeah, and Annabelle Lewin, and you know by age fifteen was like naked on an album cover <laughs> yeah. would not fly today, but the no. you know this was forty years ago. What do you think it was either of you about like British music? that really just hit such a commercial peak in 1982. I would say it was because the British bands were making more music videos than, and kind of were more on board with the conceptual music videos that MTV played because they had 24 hours a day to fill with something as opposed to, uh, you know, the American bands. Because there's not been a British invasion like that since in America. Obviously, we've had, you know, some of the British bands, you know, there was the Britpop, even with Oasis and Blur, never took off here. But it was a really anglophilic year 1982. Do you think it was because of MTV?
0: Well, I do, and I think cuz they certainly didn't, you know, lose too much tempo, you know, as the years went by, I just think that the American acts started catching up when it came to being savvy about putting videos on MTV. You know, look, even Rod Stewart gave us a bunch of schlock early on that first year. It was Rod Stewart, no conceptual vibe to his videos at all. If he was singing about being in the rain and love, he was standing in the rain next to a a pole. There was no (laughs) real dynamic. But then you had REO Speedwagons of the World who had the the worst videos on the planet because they didn't know how to do them. So – to the point, I, I think they were like the Beatles. They just they knew how to make a great pop song. I do think they valued a pop song more than we did here in America. Early on, it was mm. it was arena rock acts like REO and and Sticks and that kind of stuff.
2: Well, what's crazy here is off to my left. I wrote down Hot One Hundred singles of nineteen eighty two, and maybe we can talk about this now or or later. Yeah. But the variety that existed in nineteen eighty one and two, but. Uh. These are all songs that were on the Hot 100 in 1982. So synth pop, Human League and Soft Cell, sitting next to rock, Survivor and 38 Special, next to R&B and funk, Cool in the Gang and George Benson, next to country pop, Juice <laughs> Newton, Ronnie Millsap, Alabama, yeah. next to yeah. soft rock or yacht rock, Air Supply, Barbara Streisand, and then New Wave, The Police, The Goggles, Men at Work. Those were all on the charts at the same time. And you- Amazing. We don't get anywhere near that today.
0: When we do uh, the '80s countdown, the, the the Billboard Hot 100 countdowns of 1981, particularly, yeah, yeah. Um, or '80, which is painful to me. I call it the good, bad, and the ugly. <laughs> sure. Uh, because yeah. uh-huh. early on, it was country, it was disco holdover, it was yacht rock, it was new right. wave, it was some rocks to come, and it was a total mixed bag. You could even have Neil Diamond in the early mix and Bab Streisand. So yeah. I think that was the brilliance of MTV in general in the 80s. It got to be less so as you moved forward. But early on, and again, I, I think it continued throughout the 80s, it was a mixed bag. Where Where else would you tune into? Not your local radio station to see a white snake up against a Howard Jones up against a Culture Club, a Springsteen mm-hmm. and an Ultravox. Uh it was a great mix bag. That's back in the day when we all damn got along, you know, <laughs> more than we do now. We suffered through your friends rock and roll to get to my new wave. Yeah. And it kind of worked. And I think it had a lot to do with the videos because if you didn't like the song, there might be some element of uh, you know, the video that 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 you liked, so.
1: I do want to say that there were a lot of kind of like older artists you mentioned rod stewart allen that did get on board with kind of modernizing their sound and maybe making videos and as a result you know coexisted on mtv along with these like young new romantic british kids here are some of the older artists that put out hit albums or records in the calendar year 1982 paul mccartney had a pretty good year because i think tug of war is a great album you know uh, take it away i think is a perfect pop song but he also was on thriller we do have to talk about Michael Jackson at a point because Thriller came out in 1982, but he was on the girls mind thriller and he did Ebony and Ivory with Stevie Wonder <laughs> yeah. in the same year. George Clinton put out computer games with Atomic Dog. You know, we're you're yeah. talking about more of hip hop and stuff. He saw the future, you know, Christine McVeigh just recently passed away. And this might be blasphemous for me to say, but my favorite uh, Fleetwood Mac album is Mirage. It's not rumors. It's Mirage. Mm. I think the Mirage record, I mean, it was a hit It had huge hits on it, like, you know, gypsy and hold me. Sure, sure. And, but I think production-wise, when you listen to Mirage, you hear a a lot of that influence in in music that came along. I mean, and it was very 80s, but like, I hear a band like Empire of the Sun, which actually had Mm -hmm. Lindsey Buckingham play on their most recent album, and you hear that. So there was that. Frank Zappa had his only hit in the top 40 with Valley Girl, and we've had Moon Zappa on the show before. Cheap Trick put out my favorite album of theirs. Again, another odd choice for me, but my favorite Cheap Trick album is One on One. You mentioned... Bruce Springsteen and Nebraska was a really important record. It's my favorite Bruce Springsteen record. And I think it was really influential on a lot of Americana artists like Ryan Adams type artists that followed. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. I'm also a huge fan of Hot Space by Queen. Nobody liked it except apparently me came out. I also want to point out that Marvin Gaye, Sexual Healing came yeah. out in 1982. Big comeback for him. And then, you know, The Wall by Pink Floyd, not the album, but the movie with Bob Geldof, which was. Very clearly, Alan Parker, I ha- think, had to have been influenced by the aesthetics of the video age. Random one this is when Neil Young went new, like electronic uh-huh. with his trans record. Yeah. I'm very big on like champion records, nobody else likes trans, is a great record. And if you ever see any video footage of Neil Young doing this, like all electronic yep. show in front of his fans and all the fans looking completely baffled, it is yes. YouTube gold. And then also, I don't know if you call this old guard, but they were all kind of like seasoned, harried session musicians. Toto 4 came out with Africa. Africa, which is a song that people still, it's a meme. You hear it all the time. All of those songs came out or albums came out in 1982. And those are like, you know, older, more mm-hmm. established artists who kind of, you know, weren't content to rest on their laurels and to kind of dive into this MTV age. I mean, talk about diverse. Do you guys have any thoughts about that in-
2: I gotta throw one one into the mix. Donald Fagan's The Nightfly came out in eighty two too, which I love. Wow. Yeah. I'm a I'm a big Steely Dan and Donald Fagan. And there's some great gems off that nightfly record.
0: Are you a fan, Alan? Oh, God, yes. Nightfly was you – know, I, I was listening to it the other day to do chores around the house. Yeah, it's Nightfly. Yeah. Or, or you know, Gaucho or Asia. It doesn't matter. Steely Dan. Right. I'm a huge fan of her since. Well, look, there are other older artists that were putting stuff out. Olivia Newton-John. I mean, God, okay. she had the biggest hit of the entire decade.
2: Physical. Physical.
0: Physical. Yeah, 1981. I think it still tops the charts for the entire uh, 80s. I mean, there were a lot of other people. Melissa Manchester, for God's sakes. I don't remember always if these videos showed up on MTV. I'm pretty sure we had You Should Hear How She Talks About You. But I can't remember. A lot of times these songs came out on the radio and we weren't playing them.
1: A couple other artists I think kind of reinvented themselves as new wave artists. A band that I actually thought – I it embarrasses me to say this because I was actually born and raised in L.A. But this was a band – that I thought was a British band in 1982 angst in my pants by sparks came out Sparks,
2: yeah. <laughs> and I completely
1: oh, thought they were either British or German. And I think they get that a lot because they just yeah. seemed it. They just seemed it. And-
0: totally. Yeah. The documentary was so good. So, good. so uh, good. I had met them somewhere at a party and I, and I remember how wonderfully odd they were. I don't remember if we had a video for them on MTV. I,
1: uh, I have heard, MTV. I actually interviewed sparks, Ron and Russell at the time of yeah when uh their sparks brothers documentary was coming out and we spoke at length about the video for i predict where ron is in i believe full-on drag and like he's kind of doing a strip tease with his mustache and stuff and apparently mtv didn't really play that video very much or they only did it late at night it was they were kind of like this is too weird
0: well it was prior to 120 minutes you know which came on around 85 86 where we played all the old stuff
1: i interviewed them at length about it there was a rumor that the video for uh, uh, Angst in My Pants had been directed by David Lynch because it just had that vibe. But oh it was my. directed by a DP who had worked for David Lynch and it was very Lynchian. It was like, yeah, you want to see Ron Mail in drag stripping for a bunch of bikers? Look up that video.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I do want to mention another artist, though, that kind of was an older guard artist that not only completely got with the program with uh, video, but like they kind of went new wave as well, just as Sparks had got Hall & Oates, H2O, came out. 1982 man eater one of the best songs of all time definitely high on my list their videos maybe didn't date that well this is the case with a lot of artists but they you know
0: well they, they had voices came out in 1980 then you had private eyes was 83 84 so that was a sweet spot starting in 82 with h2o we actually sponsored their tour i have a tour jacket from that time not a oh members only style jacket can i have it it's in my closet right now. If I could find it, I'd, I'd bring it over here and show it to you.
1: You could bring it over to my house, and I will I went to it see
0: and Daryl and, and Todd Rundgren the other night, too, by the way. And that was How fun. is that show? It's coming and, here. You know, it's tons of fun. It was good to see Todd. Yeah. yeah. No, nah, he's in good voice. Daryl, mm-hmm. you know, look, he, he, uh, it's hit and miss sometimes, I understand, sure. over the past couple of years. It depends on how he feels. But he did a version of Eurythmics, Here Comes the Rain Again,
1: oh, wow. at the piano
0: solo, which was killer. Apparently, he and Dave Stewart are working on some new music. So,
1: But I feel like we're, we're well into this. We're, at you know, deep into the calendar year of 1982. <laughs> yeah. And we have not talked about a couple of the biggest artists of, and biggest albums of that year, which is Michael Jackson's Thriller yeah. and Prince's 1999. Oh God, we're talking yeah. here with Minneapolis royalty here, Jake Grude. But, you know, you were talking, Alan, about how at one point you, MTV would play any video or not any video, but like, you know, was opened. They had time to fill, but, you know, obviously Michael Jackson's thriller was really important because, you know, it's well-known now, including in the documentary, I want my MTV, which Al and I are, are both in about how these two artists, especially Michael broke the color barrier of MTV. You yep. know, they, they were like two of the first black artists to be playing MTV and made two of the most mm-hmm. iconic records of the eighties or ever, both in 1982.
0: Absolutely. I don't remember when, though, because we premiered Billie Jean in 83, mm. I think. So Thriller came out towards the end of 82, maybe. The Girl Is Mine was the first release. Nobody knew that because there was no video for it. Mm. I And I think that it was early then in 83 when Billie Jean premiered, maybe spring of 83. Thriller had a huge long life. <laughs> I mean, it rolled out over a year and just kept cranking out hits, obviously. So when we started to hear – I mean I didn't – I remember being with Mark Goodman when we got the video and started hearing a day or two in advance that we were going to play Michael Jackson. So we watched the video and we said, of course we're going to play this. We didn't realize in the boardroom all that was going on with the record companies threatening to pull all of their CBS material if he didn't play Michael. We were barely aware really of the issue of not playing any black artists. We were playing Garland Jeffries and Gary U.S. Bonds, and not that we thought that would do it for you know people of color. Hey, we got two. But we just didn't realize that that was being perceived out there. I think that people like Bob Pittman who ran the show and his people that, that chose the music knew kind of what they wanted. It was all rock and roll. I, I didn't defend or deny that issue even when we were asked about it. I'm just glad we finally put Michael on.
1: Me too. I think a lot of the issue was that for whatever reason, the powers that be at MTV had categorized MTV as being a rock radio station.
0: They were radio programmers and they thought it was rock and roll and they, everything had its silo and they were acting like radio people.
1: Which is why I believe that Prince, the, the album, you know, the songs from from uh, 1999, Little Red Corvette and, and 1999 got played a lot on MTV because he was deemed more of a rock artist yeah, than you know, Michael Jackson.
0: Yeah, he's playing rock guitar.
1: But I mean, I know I know Purple Rain would come out a, a couple of years you know, later and right. then Prince would become like the biggest uh, artist on the planet for a while. But, you know, I do think 1999 is probably it's up there. He has a lot of seminal albums. I'd like to talk. Jake, you are a uh, a Minneapolitan. Is that the word?
2: <laughs> yeah. 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 You nailed <laughs> you're, it. Um, you're a
1: Minneapolitan. And the first time I ever met you was in 2016 <laughs> when right. I came out to Minneapolis to watch. Uh, the tribute to Prince that was at First Avenue, I guess it was maybe yeah, it was it was like six months after, five months after he, had, maybe not even that, like four yeah. months after Prince had passed. It was Labor Day weekend of 2016, and I met you at First Avenue, and yeah. people like myself flew everywhere to yeah. see uh, the Revolution perform. You know, all of, it was a very very emotional mm-hmm. night. I was honored
2: to DJ that night. It was Quest Love and myself. Uh, we each had had a night, and I was extremely honored that First Avenue asked that I would DJ. Wow. Uh, the night that Prince passed, um, because it was and it will always be the most special gig I've ever DJ'd in my life. I mean, extremely sad, but extremely joyous at the same time, because we were celebrating this man's career and iconic songs and to have over 1500 people singing every word. I mean, I get goosebumps even thinking about it. And then to look outside the club and you couldn't see where the people ended because everyone came downtown Minneapolis and was just swarming First Avenue nightclub. It was it was an unbelievable time.
0: That's amazing.
1: Where are your thoughts, Jake, on where in the Prince lore 1999 sense? It wasn't his first record. No, uh, I, and no. obviously Purple Rain was a bigger record and he's put out so many great records. But I yeah. feel like 1999 was a real...
2: It kind of put him on the map a little bit more, uh, for sure, nationally, and if not globally. Again, I guess it's MTV is the first one that MTV really clung on to, right? And then, then after that happened, then it was like, wow. I mean, once... Once he could be heard and seen by the masses, people were like, "Oh my God, who is this? This is amazing!" You
0: know? Yeah, it was. Well, we played we we played uh, we played the title track. We played "Little Red Corvette," probably more than any of the rest from that album, right?
1: Yeah, yeah I remember seeing that a lot, and yeah, um, that the fact that. 1999 Uh, by Prince and Thriller by Michael Jackson came out in the same year. Michael, as you mentioned, maybe MTV got more on board with Michael in in 1983 because Thriller came out in November of 1982. But that calendar year was the year that two of the most important albums of the 80s came out. So kind of Mm -hmm. like I said, it was
0: a great year. It was crowded. You know, uh, by the way, that was the first chance I had to go to Los Angeles for MTV. And I was supposed to interview Prince at the Greek, and hmm. I don't know what happened. I I flew in that afternoon. And I was like going, "Wow, Hollywood Sunset Strip! Oh yeah, I got to interview Prince tonight." So we go to the Greek, and for some reason, it didn't happen. The interview. Aww. I didn't even meet Prince, but I Aww. did get to meet Drew Barrymore, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and I hung out with Belinda Carlisle and Drew Barrymore backstage and. Nice. And so we awesome. we made we made uh, you know lemons out of uh, lemonade out of limits, but. Uh, I think that we didn't really fully realize how unbelievable Prince was. I know that sounds odd. You guys could dive deeper, I think, into albums even than I could. Mark and I have talked about this before. When you worked for MTV, we were so inundated with so much stuff. I didn't have a lot of free time to go and listen to all the music I wanted to listen to. I couldn't dive deep sometimes into an album. I doubt I had time to even listen to uh, – the first time I listened to an album stem to stern was Sign of the Times. Now, that's one of my favorites. And I was breathing in 1985 and 86 out on my, my new condo uh, balcony, and I remember having the headphones on. But um, I just I think things were happening so fast and furiously at that point, we didn't realize who was you know, really starting to ascend.
1: Speaking of things being fast and furious, I do need to mention hip hop was really, I think, just obviously it wasn't quite on the national map yet. And, um, you know, there was no Yo! MTV raps or whatever. But 1982 was a really good watershed moment for early rap. I mean, I already mentioned that Malcolm McLaren, the former manager of the Sex Pistols, like hooked up with the DJs, the world. uh, There were these DJs. They were the world famous Supreme Team and they made Buffalo Gals in Mm -hmm. 1982, Mm -hmm. which is a song that went on to be hugely sampled and interpolated. And it's kind of where you think this like pasty Sex Pistols manager would have such a big hip hop song. But I do want to point out that Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Fives, The Message, came out in 1982. So much like political or sociopolitical, socially conscious rap, you know, public enemy NWA. owe such a debt to that song. I, you know, now it might sound, you know, with what rap came later to hear, you know, someone saying, don't push me because I'm close to the edge. Probably doesn't sound that threatening or that, you know, that crazy. But at the time it was like, whoa, like this is not party rap. And also Africa Mabata's Planet Rock, which, you know, interpolated uh, Trans Europe Express by Kraftwerk a very game-changing song. And, and that was 1982 as well. I don't even know if those made videos. I, well, Buffalo Gals had a video. But, you know, these were really big... Like, I would argue that, of course, you know, the origins of rap date back to the 70s or even 60s, you know, but with The Last Poets or whatever... And I did, I mentioned earlier, George Clinton's Computer Games, but you know, which came out in 1982. But Atomic Dog is a classic and obviously got interpolated in What's My Name by Snoop Dogg and pretty much influenced all the G-Funk records. Everything Parliament Funkadelic did influenced the G-Funk records to come. But I think Atomic Dog... Bow, wow, wow, yippee, oh, yippee eh. that's a really big song. Oh, for yeah. Well, as
0: usual, the Brits were listening to to stuff that was happening in America before we were paying attention to it. I mean, rap certainly was starting to bubble under before MTV caught on for, I think, even more obvious reasons than than Michael Jackson hadn't played yet or Prince hadn't played yet. Uh, and Yo! MTV Raps in 86, 87 was an acknowledgement. And I think it was Peter Doherty, one of the producers of – of YoN raps it said uh, to the MTV brass y'all don't understand this shit's been going on for a long long time you know yeah. late 70s the you know and and Blondie brought it to, you know to mm-hmm. the mainstream obviously and said this is what's going on in at least in New York certainly going on on the West Coast as well but it that it took so long to kind of come to the mainstream. And, and that's when a bunch of white boys started embracing it. Thank you Run DMC for hooking up with Aerosmith. Uh, and thank you Beastie Boys for really bringing it to the forefront. Yeah. But it, tough, tough for the, the rest of the, the pioneers like Grandmaster and the rest to say, hey, where's our, where's our mainstream love?
1: I'm right. trying to give them some right now. You are.
0: You yeah. are. <laughs> but I mean, the
1: the message, I think, I mean, obviously, Atomic Dog and Planet Rock were really seminal songs, but I yeah. think the message, I think, is one of the most important hip hop songs of all time.
2: Yeah, massively influential. In
1: 1982. Yeah. But yeah. switching gears, like, I love the fact that, Jake, you read off those, those top 100 songs and how diverse and bizarre they were, because... Uh, along with all the hip-hop and R&B we're talking about and the pop and the rock, 1982 was a pretty similar year for metal as well. I mean these are – and a British metal as well, like Screaming for Vengeance by Judas Priest came out in 1982. Number of the Beast by Iron Maiden came oh, yeah. out. In, I'm waiting for Iron Maiden again the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Judas Priest You know, I
0: got to tell this. you, it makes – it, it doesn't make sense that they were around in the early 80s. I don't know why I thought Iron Maiden got a later start in the decade. But that you mentioned they're out of 82, it's like wow.
1: Run to the hills. Yeah. That came <laughs> so, out in 82. I
0: and also that. like
1: the last album that KISS, at least for a while, made during a makeup era was Creatures of the Night, which just came out in 1982, just celebrate the anniversary. I Love It Loud from that album with the is one of my favorite KISS songs of all time. And also the video is completely ridiculous with these like children <laughs> of the corn walking around with like glowing LED red <laughs> eyes. But that, yeah. and also Van Halen, who I would say, I guess, commercially peaked in 1984 with the album of that title. But like Diver Down came out in 1982 and they had a lot of covers on that album. They covered the Kinks, mm-hmm. Roy Orbison. Mm-hmm. But all of those came out in uh, 1982 and sort of set the groundwork for, you know, the metal bands that would take over the MTV airwaves in the later 80s.
2: You know, I mentioned all of these great uh, new wave artists out of the UK, but there were actually some great gems from the U.S., uh, that are deemed new wave, and a lot of them out of the LA area. You mentioned Sparks, which a lot of people were like, Are they British or are they American? Yeah. But Berlin, pleasure victim, missing Ooh. persons, spring session M. I mm-hmm. love that record. 82, the motels, all for one. 82, the go gos vacation, boingo mm-hmm. boingo, nothing to fear. Just those artists right there, all
1: 1982. All L.A. L.A. represent. I'm a very proud Angelino. And also Under the Big Black Sun, which is my favorite album by X, came yeah. out that year. And, you know, X never really kind of – they always were bigger in L.A. than anywhere else, but I think that was a really important That was record. one of my
0: early interviews as well with x and John Doe. How'd that go? Uh, I was a big X fan. She was just a sweetheart, loved her to death. And he was a big uh, galoofy guy who was just <laughs> – a sweetheart as well. I was a big yeah. X fan. That yeah. is funny that it's so L.A.-centric, isn't it? Where right. is the heartland in all of this? But, of course, you know, it was represented, I guess. Melon Camp was big. I
1: was just about to say, as he was then known, John Cougar put out American Fool, There's Your Heartland.
0: I mean, he was uh, the little ditty, Jack and Diane and Hurt So Good was a Little Pink 82. Houses.
1: Were you there, Alan, when that house was painted pink, the little pink house, and then given away as a as a yeah? Absolutely. I
0: I went out a week in advance to do a promo, and we scoured Bloomington and and Seymour, Indiana, and we were just you know we were interviewing the regular folks. Do you know John? He's a beloved son, and we're going to give away this pink house. I interviewed horses and cattle and animals (laughs) and whoever goes back. You you interviewed horses. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I interviewed. What they have uh, to say. I interviewed uh, horses that were mating. This is a little bit of a behind-the-scenes story, and it's not a story at all. I don't have anything more to say than that. It <laughs> but they started making love while we were interviewing them on camera. There you uh, it. Thankfully, it was taped. The, the funny thing about it is that we did give that house away, and that was one of the early, really fun MTV promotions. You know, fly mm-hmm. to hang out for a weekend with Van Halen or go with me to see Journey in Long Island. But the Little Pink House thing was tons of fun until the winter, and MTV discovered that the house – and you've heard the story – It was either on an Indian burial ground or a radon dump, I forget, but the house was contaminated. Hurt so not good. That's not good. And we had to quietly, the legal team, find them a new house. I don't think it ever got painted pink, though. They painted it pink, it was a tainted house. And the girl or whoever was maybe on the verge of suing and MTV covered that one up.
1: So. so the person who won the little pink house in this contest on MTV that was tied to John Cougar, John John Cougar Mellencamp, Camp was yeah. she actually lived in the house? She didn't just try to sell Where was it? Like Seymour, Indiana? It was like in uh, I don't
0: know, I don't remember if it was Bloomington or Seymour. They're, okay. they're twenty minutes apart. She didn't live in the pink house we gave her. <laughs> she might have died or you know, Native American spirits would have killed her i don't know but it was a big brouhaha for sure
2: i gotta uh, put a plug in for the book vj i don't think alan will so if you like what alan is saying you need to read the book vj maybe you were going to mention that uh, Lindsay, but so many good stories and especially if you grew up watching mtv alan and the rest of the vjs minus jj jackson rest in peace although were there some jj stories in there as well
0: Oh, yeah, we represented J.J. We kind of told his story for yeah. him. You know, it, be, it became an or I don't talk about it a lot. We put it out probably now eight or eight years ago, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's an oral history. I We hired a great writer, Gavin Edwards, from Rolling Stone and a bunch of other stuff. He's done a lot of uh, ghostwriting and autobiographies. Mm-hmm. But I wanted him to write a narrative about our uh, lives that was much more poetic and wonderful than our real lives. Mm-hmm. And the editor said, no, we want it. Uh, an oral history in your in your words it's like no i want someone to write something grand but it's been it was a fun book to write and yes there's a lot of stories the problem is when you write those stories down then people hear you tell the anecdote live on a show like this and go yeah i read that in a book no
1: it's nice to hear a little
0: different than he told it the other issue is that you can lie about all sorts of shit did you meet so and so yeah i partied with him and and if it didn't happen you know what rocker is going to remember no one knows. So thanks for reading it. It's kind of fun. I liked it. I think it's fun for people to be able to get a behind-the-scenes look at some of the stuff they were they were watching. Or rather, when you watch something that's so ubiquitous in people's lives, like MTV back in the day, yeah. it was sort of your 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 landscape, your wall, your wallpaper, if you will. And then to hear Martha tell a story about that interview with Bob Dylan or, you know, Mm -hmm. with Paul McCartney or whatever and what was going on. You
2: did what I wanted to do growing up. I wanted to be a VJ growing up. I mean, I was supposed to be outside playing, you know, don't tell my parents this, but uh, (laughs) I should have been on my BMX. uh, But inside, I was watching MTV, writing down, logging every video, (laughs) even at eight and nine years old. I was I was a weird kid. I mean, I still am. But uh, I I was infatuated. Uh, Infatuation. What year did that come out? It's probably about 84.
0: (laughs) Infatuation, right? Yeah, exactly. I I wanted
1: to be Martha Quinn myself, and I have told Martha that.
0: You are kind of like Martha Quinn. You have, you have, uh, you're, uh, well, Martha was spunky, and she certainly uh, didn't suffer fools lightly, but uh, you guys Mm -hmm. have the same fun energy, that's for sure. And you're kind of, your information traps too. Lindsay, your brain is, is killer. <laughs> I am I am more of a gestalt guy. I get kind of the whole, you know. Um I'm kind of a vibe and an emotion guy. And people come up and test my my knowledge all the time. You know, right now. You remember that video? And I go, right off the bat, no. <laughs> <laughs> At least well, you're honest. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, when you lived it, you lived it. I mean, Jake and I were just vicariously living through it by watching the TV. But I understand, you know, you lived all this. And there's, there was, like I said, in 1982, there was a lot going on. Some other, I'm just randomly, because I have this list, much like Jake. Some yes. other albums that came out in 1982, which have very little in common with each other, except that they were all awesome. The Stray Cats, Built for Speed, you know, they yeah. were really in their own niche. I mean, I, they're, in the late 70s, there had been a lot of like... Kind of 50s revival with Sha Na, Na and Happy Days and Grease the movie and American Graffiti the movie. When the Stray Cats do what they did with Bill for Speed, they're another band, American. A lot of people thought they were British because yeah, they went yeah. over to England to break yeah. first.
0: Bigger in England than they were here in the U.S. They are a great example. They, they are, are also in their own way a poster band for MTV. Mm-hmm. They're an example of a kid in Iowa. Watching MTV and hearing the rockabilly to the Stray Cats up against, you know, all the other aforementioned bands going to the record store and saying, I want the Stray Cats. Mm -hmm. And they were like, who in the hell are the Stray Cats and where are you seeing them on MTV? So their career totally built on MTV. No radio play whatsoever here. And they were a fascinating addition. And how different were they to to revive that rockabilly vibe?
1: They were really in their own lane. Oh, unusual. And then another band that I... I'm surprised we haven't mentioned yet, not their first album, but definitely their breakthrough album with MTV was NXS put out Shabu Shaba. One thing, don't change. I mean, and, you know, definitely Michael Hutchins was a poster boy for MTV for a while.
0: And, and there is another MTV story. I'm sorry. It's not all MTV centric for me, but you called me on the damn show, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> In was an example of MTV flexing their muscles to see what their power was in the business. If you've heard this story, forgive me. But I have we not. Were, we were sat down by Les Garland and some of the powers that be and said, there's this new band from Australia. And they showed us the name, and I went, Inks? What stupid name is that? <laughs> I mispronounced all sorts of hazy fantasy names back then. Right. The so they had made – yes, they had had some dinner, the higher-ups with some record company people, and they said, let's see if we can break a band. And so we didn't really do anything more than just talk about them. Probably gave them a few extra swings on the one thing, but it was such a massive success that that broke in excess here in the United States. People were not hearing them on the radio necessarily in America, except they were seeing the video. So their third album, they were broken essentially by MTV. And because Michael Hutchins was such a God, you know, a God and a new beautiful Jim Morrison, They caught on. Kick, the sixth album, was the big international hit, you know, three or four years later. Uh, We haven't mentioned Huey Lewis in the news.
1: Huey Lewis was another everyman. It's funny you bring it up because I also have a vivid memory of my dad walking into where I was watching MTV and seeing Huey Lewis on and being like, oh, I like this guy.
0: Go have a beer with him.
1: Exactly. Mm -hmm. And um, although they got bigger later, the picture of this album came out in 1982, which has Do You Believe in Love, which is my favorite song by them. So did you have something to say about Huey?
0: Well, I believe uh, album number 2 had a couple of hits on it, but they were on the verge of losing their record deal by like album number 3 or 4. I mean, the Sports album was the one that kept their record deal intact, and every song was a, it was a hit on Sports.
1: But it's interesting that you know, sports was the one that broke them open. I'm sure Back to the Future had a lot to do with their success yeah. as well because yeah. to working for a living and Do You Believe yeah. in Love were out in 1982. And yeah. I remember MTV playing those videos quite a bit. That was yeah. my well, how you
0: Yeah, today. how you had a good play on MTV and were realizing a great deal of success. And then if you didn't, what, keep it going for the next couple of years, then the record company is going to trash you. I mean, Huey told Mark and I this story just a couple of years ago in the series Studios that they that he looked at the band uh, after four, the four album was number five, maybe. Mm-hmm. I may be wrong on all this. Maybe it was number three and sports was four. But he said, we got to write all hits. It was, and the guys are like, what have we been writing? MTV's <laughs> been playing them, but record company is going to can us if we don't have a major major hit. So but good year for him. I, I guess Back to the Future probably really you know, propelled them or, or rose the bar for them. Hey, we didn't mention another big rock band you were talking about. Foreigner had a great year in 82, Waiting for a Girl Like You.
1: Oh, wow. For some reason, Um, that sounds like a 70s song to me. I know. That's a testament to how diverse sonically 1982 was, like how many different types of music was on the charts at that time.
0: To me, it feels like the first time from the band, which is 1977 and their debut, has a very 80s vibe to it. So funny that they were kind of in that arena power pop but journey sounds journey of the 70s although they can sound way san francisco and kind of santana ish with neil Schon's guitar you know sounded like they were headed for the the power pop of the the decade as well journey i guess open arms mm-hmm. was 1982 don't stop was 82 okay
2: gotta also mention that um thomas dolby and you guys probably already know this, played that keyboard intro into that foreigner yes. yeah, waiting yeah. for urgent. a girl like
0: you. Ur- yeah. he, he, I he did not urgent. know that. Didn't you know that? It's so I cool. I did not know that. It's a Thomas great Stolby. fun fact. Yeah. Thomas
1: Dolby got around.
0: Yeah. He programmed the synthesizers for several of the songs on that. Nobody yeah. knew who he was at the time. I don't remember how they.
2: He was just a studio heard. musician. They flew him yeah, over yeah. just for his yeah. uh, synth wizardry.
0: Does everybody know how Thomas was able to retire from the music business and get rich? He invented ringtones or something? Ringtones, was it? I think it was the polyphonic ringtone and he sold it to Nokia and he made many millions of dollars.
1: The The golden age of wireless. He, He foresaw the future.
0: He's fascinating. And now he's a professor at Johns Hopkins.
1: I started this podcast by saying That i thought it was the best year for the 1980s musically and i after talking to you guys at length i i doubled down on that statement i really do
0: well me too i came to the table saying i thought 84 85 was my sweet spot but i i think that has to do with the context of mtv and my job there i mean i was swinging three years into it was making good bread and could get a table anywhere I wanted to in New York. So <laughs> I was. I, it was a great time for a lot of reasons beyond just music, which may be sad. But 82, I forgot. I mean, you know, you guys have brought to light a lot of stuff that I forgot was happening.
1: Well, what a career you've had, Alan, because you were in the early 80s in 1982 witnessing all of this firsthand. What is your overall, like, number one musical memory of 1982? It could be something that happened at MTV or it could just be like you know, something you did out in the field or or just a record that meant a lot to you. But you were there really as a witness firsthand to all of this greatness that was happening in this, you know, watershed
0: year. I had huge highlights. Live Aid had to be one of the most satisfying things to do, not because of my performance, but just being there for Live Aid. That was a kind of a huge moment for MTV. It looked like we might get a little bit more serious. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, it's funny, my best interview and I know this will sound non-rock and roll, was Billy Joel in Russia. Uh, Hmm. My last gig kind of bookending my career at MTV was to go to Russia for two weeks. We did a documentary on pop in Russia, what was happening musically, and we went with Billy's tour, and I got to interview him, and uh, I was a huge Billy Joel fan before, so that interview went really well, even though he was hung over as hell. <laughs> and he and Christy apparently were fighting, so he had these huge uh, bags under his eyes. Uh, but that was kind of the last thing I did. you And know, in, in the middle, interviewing Duran Duran the first time on MTV, going on a boat with him in the Hudson with Richard Branson. I mean, I guess I would name things wow. that sound like I'm just saying the cool stuff. But to be able to usher on, uh, to be the first to interview Madonna at a, at the Limelight Club in New York, wow! You know, 10 minutes of a backstage frenetic interview, which just appeared on YouTube not long ago, um, where she totally knew in 1982, 83, where she was going and what she was going to do. <laughs> Every question I asked her, she was like laser focused.
1: Yeah. We hadn't mentioned Billy Joel yet, and yeah, yeah. you just did. So Alan, I do want to point out that when we're yeah. sort of talking about these kind of Singer-songwriters who'd been around for, you know, a minute in the 70s yeah. who really kind of made a successful transition to the 80s, uh, no doubt, mm-hmm. at least partially thanks to MTV. The Nylon Curtain, which is yeah. actually my favorite Billy it, doll. It is my favorite. TV. And I, Allentown, I was, Pressure. The Allentown. The, yeah. Is there anything more 80s than the video for
0: Pressure? You know, th- those two were some of the, the biggest budget videos at the time, too. Billy spent a quarter of a million dollars on those. And wow. Russell Mulcahy, who, who was one of the great video directors, did those, too. And Pressure is my favorite, I think. Allentown was a little overblown. You had the Broadway chorus boys that were all greased up. (laughs) And it was a very serious subject of, you know, a town hurting because of the decline of the business. And then you got these guys uh, greased up dancing like chorus boys. Uh, Billy will tell you that that video was a little overdone for him, but uh, (laughs) Pressure was great. The Nylon Curtain was such a serious work from him. It, It had a lot of gravitas to it.
1: I used to completely trip out over that pressure video. And, you know, like when I was talking about the special effects of not, or not so special effects of flock of seagulls where like, they had to wrap something in a camera in like a hefty bag to hide it. The video over pressure were like, you know he's being sucked down yeah. into that like huge
0: sets row yeah. rug
1: on the floor yeah. and yeah. he's like having this nervous breakdown it's kind of like clockwork yeah. orangey with him like yeah. looking at all the it couldn't be more 80s another big video that was on mtv in 1982 that was kind of like an older guard singer songwriter was uh you got lucky by tom petty where they're oh, yeah. in the it was town. tom petty made a really good transition in yeah. 1982 and the 80s that followed with songs and he didn't like, that.
0: like doing videos he didn't he want to pose them, he didn't like lip syncing he, he thought it was kind of goofy to be doing that but he made don't come around here no more was probably my favorite dave stewart from eurythmics the uh, the caterpillar you might remember
1: it was a really strong year so i'm just wondering if either of you can sort of sum up like what was in the water what was in the air in 1982 i know you know you were ringing it in at like the mtv like new year's eve uh alan but what was what was going on in 1982 that made this year i think the most important year for 80s music?
0: Well, I think from the music business standpoint, and that that, we'll figure out how that translates to the actual audience, the music business was healthy again. It was in the toilet at the end of the 70s. MTV came around, literally rescued the music business so that artists could start to make a living. I I think they didn't have to make a living too, by the way, by just touring. They could make it by selling records again. So by 1982, I think that there were so many more artists as – you know we kind of have established today it was such a crowded year because so many artists on both sides of the atlantic were starting to make their mark i think that's the year that american artists started to catch up a bit mm-hmm. and uh and started to realize what the visual medium was all about again you talk to these old rockers and they were like we do our concerts we sell albums we go to the bus and mm-hmm. now we got to make a video the UK Brit artists were making videos for Top of the Pops. The Beatles were making promotional films way back when, and, um, and they knew what the deal was, and that's why they fared so well in 82. To me, I don't know if it was a springboard to really heady times in 83 and 84 at that point, and uh, I think it, it, it kind of started around then.
1: Well, we're going to have to have you back on for the best of 83 next year and uh, maybe the best of 84 because every year has, you know, great records that came out. But I will stand by my assessment (laughs) that the best year, it was the best of times, it was the best of times. I'm a convert, Lindsay, at
0: the end of this show. Uh, that, 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 my job I, is I, my
1: job is done
0: i agree with you and jake it was a heady time I, i'm coming
2: I, in on a left field here too because we didn't mention uh peter gabriel and shot oh monkey oh my god one of, them,
1: god, yes. one of the uh,
2: that was at my tender age in 82 i was at eight nine years old and watching that video uh it like it was like dark it put me in this weird like mind frame but it was also alluring and it, like, introduced me to Peter Gabriel. But there's something magical about uh, Shock the Monkey and very scary at that time. Well, that
0: that to me is uh, something I point out as a, a, an excellent example of early video, but really for the entire decade and ever since. And that was one, one great album, by the way. Security was just amazing. But Shock the Monkey was the perfect marriage between a great, percussive, impactful song and a video that translated it, didn't yeah. overshadow it, and it didn't uh, you know distract from it. Totally. And that would be my second favorite video of all time, I think. Wow. Shock
1: what's your Monkey. first? Fashion by uh, David Bowie that you were in? <laughs> should be, shouldn't it? Top 10. All right. What's um, your fir- I'm, I, not, I need to know what your favorite video oh, of all for time sure. is.
0: And it's not because it was the greatest video of all time, but what more do you need than David Byrne in front of the weatherman screen doing the choppy chop once in a lifetime because of the, the watery, musical, uh dreamy kind of quality to it, the yep. the, the song, everything about it, and David nice. Byrne uh in front of indigenous people from Africa it is just magic. And at two in the morning when you're stoned and or trying to Come down from a buzz. That was the perfect late night video.
2: That's so cool you say that. That's my f- number one video of all time as well. It's so well, cool. I don't know
1: if you guys know this. That video did not come out in 1982, but it was choreographed by someone who had one of the biggest hits of 1982, Mickey. Tony. That video yes. was choreographed by Tony Basil. Tony Basil. Yep. She yep. gave him
0: and and uh, why why would you have to choreograph David Byrne? That dude's got most. Just let him go. Mind. Yeah. But she right. did the. I I asked him. Did did the the choppy chop thing on the arm. He says Tony Basil came up with those kind of. Really?
1: And she came up with the whole cheerleader chant in Tony's in her own video for Mickey and she hired real cheerleaders. And, you know, if you hear a song like Back Girl or like Girlfriend by Avril Lavigne, you hear Tony Basil's influence of Mickey in that. We really could go on forever, but we should probably wrap this up so we can, you know, end the year in style. But you definitely will be back next year for the best of 83 and the best of 84. And both of you are welcome to come back for that. But before I let you go, what do either of you have going on that you'd like to do a shameless plug for?
0: Oh, nice. Uh, Go buy the paperback edition of the book. (laughs) It's been out for a couple of years and a great addition to your Christmas list for sure.
1: Jake, what do you have going on?
2: Okay, well, if anyone is in the metro area or if you'd like to just fly in, I am hosting New Year's Eve at First Avenue, and we are going back to the 80s, of course.
0: Oh, my God, i so got to be, be there. That's so be, fun for you to be at First Avenue. That's It'll amazing.
2: be five-plus hours of uh, just 80s music videos, culture, wow. and... Uh, so that's New Year's Eve at First Avenue. That's the next thing. That,
1: that sounds like a wonderful way to win in to ring in uh, 2023. But I enjoyed ringing in 1982 with you guys. I feel yeah. like it's 19. We party like it was 1982 we and did. like it was 1999. We did. So thank you again. Special guest to my expert guest today, superstar VJ Alan Hunter and superstar DJ Jake. The 80s never ended in my world. Root. The 80s never end here at Totally 80s. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Remember to give Totally 80s a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform. And I'll catch you next time. Happy New Year, everybody.
2: Thank
0: you, Lindsay. Love you.
2: Thanks, Lindsay.
0: This was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally
1: 80s. And please leave us a review on your favourite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side.